Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to head over to Luke chapter 4 today. We'll be back there again. I think it's our third week in the fourth chapter of Luke. Uh, in the previous chapter, just to catch you up where we were, Jesus was uh, preaching the synagogue in the city of Nazareth, his uh, hometown. And he's run out of town at the very end, ultimately. Uh, the, the people didn't appreciate, uh, as they're starting to see him say, you know, indeed, I'm, I'm the Messiah, and here's what I've, I've come to do. Uh, they see these unique things, and they, they run him out of town. So today's passage, though, it, it, we're picking up with, with Jesus, and he's ministering in Capernaum, which is this prosperous fishing town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and so we're going to then read our passage in two portions. One's going to be a large portion to start with, and the second one will be a little, just three verses at the end. So, um, But follow along with me. Let's, uh, let's read beginning in chapter 4, beginning in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and, and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> you, Lord, you are our one ancient hope. You're the only person to ever speak with ultimate authority. You're the one who can heal both <clears throat> bodily disease and sinful hearts. May we receive your word today as your word today and be changed by it. Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts to, to not only understand your word, but to love it, to believe it, to position our lives under it and its authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's just jump right into the passage here. Uh, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath, as he normally does, and he's in this, uh, this synagogue in the city of Capernaum. Now, it's interesting because that synagogue, the, the ruins of it, actually still exist today. You could go there and stand at the, moment, at the very place where this stuff was going on. And, and here we learn that the people are astonished, right? That's the word astonished after listening to Jesus' teaching. And, and astonished, it means to, to literally to strike with shock. That's how you kind of translate that. You see, it's, it's kind of that, that moment when, when, you're, when you're watching a magician and you kind of think that what you saw was real and not an illusion. That, that, that moment of amazement where you're just like, how did he do that? How is that possible? 
That, that's the moment of astonishment that we're talking about here. And, and, and that raises that question, right? What, what has them so amazed then? It, it, is what, uh, did, did Jesus wasn't just quoting other, other rabbis before him and their opinions. That was generally the way that they would, they would do their teaching. But Jesus is speaking with, with absolute divine authority. He's telling them things about God that no one's ever said before. See, Jesus will reference his authority later, right? After his resurrection, you, you probably know this, it's, it's well known as the Great Commission, right? You remember in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, uh, it begins with, All authority in heaven and, and on earth has been given to me. His authority, then, is, is the basis, the, the foundation for the commission that he gives after, right? To go, in there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the authority of Christ that we see over and over him. Abraham Kuyper has that wonderful quote. I just love it. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That's the authority we're talking about. But, but Christian, let me ask you a question this morning. How, how do you relate to God's word? Truly. Is it authoritative in your life? I mean, do you, do, you, do you intellectually just kind of know the scriptures and what they teach and, and, and such? Do you, do you hear it sometimes as well? That's, that's decent advice. Or do you seek to actually bring your life into submission to what God teaches in his word? Because they're two very different things. When we were in Kansas City recently, one of our, our children on the ride is stand, staring out the window. And as we go around the, a corner in our minivan, she asked me this question, you know, why, why are the speed limit signs on the curve yellow, but most speed limit signs are white? You ever wonder that? I, I thought I knew the answer. I looked it up to make sure I was right, though. The reason is that the white signs are called regulation signs. Those signs actually carry the authority of the law with them. You must Stay below this speed limit on this road. It's a requirement. There's authority. However, the yellow signs are, they're actually called advisory signs. They give you advice on what would be a wise speed to go around the corner, but, um, you know, a speed to keep around the corner, but they carry no authority. You're not going to get a ticket for going over the yellow sign speed limit. And, and I'll say, as I thought through this, though, I found this concept incredibly helpful because when I open my Bible, I don't find these written on yellow, yellow paper, do I? Right? What, what color is this? You can say this out loud. This is the participation part right here. It's white, right? Yes, nailed it, whoever said it over there. It's white with the black words, just like the regulation signs. And I'm not saying it's some conspiracy for this to make this point. But, uh, but the signs, right, that carry authority, and so does our Bibles with the white, with the black words. Um, the, the Holy Scripture, you know, has this place of authority in our lives. And, and I'll say this, if that's not true in your life, then, then your way of relating to God and your way of relating to God's word needs to be refreshed. Needs to be restructured. Let me also mention this. When, when we preach, we, we don't do so on our own authority. Because we have none. We just don't. We do so on the authority of, of God's word, on, on the scripture. That's, that's why we preach the scriptures week in and week out. You see, when, we, when, when people preach anything else, what we do is we, we turn the church into something other than what God designed it to be. That, that's why, you know, it's not that these things are, are, are bad in any way, but it's why we don't preach self-help advice. We don't preach cultural leadership concepts. We don't preach 
social or political agendas of any sort. It's not about, you know, some sort of entertainment and we'll give you just a, a little side helping of Scripture on the side, right? And call it a day. God's Word is and will continue to be the focal point because only God's Word has the authority. Only God's Word reveals the good news of the Gospel that we and all people so desperately need. So then in this passage, we also see that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm, right? There's this man, he's possessed by an unclean demon. Not that I, you know, there's no distinction here to understand what the unclean part of it is. You'd think any demon's bad news, right? Um, Anyway, this is a a spiritual being. It's, It's an angel who has rebelled against God. And so then the demon recognizes Jesus, and, and through the lips of the man that he's possessed, he, he, the demon says in this dramatic fashion, right? Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, right? He's identifying who he is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then we see later in verse 41 that the, the demons call him, You are the Son of God. And, and Jesus tells the demon, Be silent. It's one word in the Greek. It literally means be muzzled, be muzzled. Um, when I was a, a camp counselor one summer, we, we got paid nothing, but it was this glorious experience. Uh, and, and there was this one set of two or three weeks, I can't remember how long it was, but we had this large group of, of children that, that came from Mexico City. They were ultra wealthy, and they didn't speak a lick of English. Uh, and it made for this incredibly interesting way of trying to lead them around and, 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 and care for them. But <clears throat> right from the start, we, we found them. They were constantly yelling at each other, Cayete, uh, Cayete, over and over again. Not like three times, but like 400 times a day. Cayete, Cayete, constantly. It wasn't until a few days later that someone finally told us that that word means shut up. It's like a, a rude way to say be quiet in Spanish. We had no idea. We were shouting it with them for a while. <clears throat> That's when we were finally told what it meant, actually. Um, and so they'd say this hundreds of times a day to each other, and yet nobody ever stopped talking. It carried zero authority, absolutely none, right? They just talked louder and more. And, and I'm and I kind of thinking through that and thinking the way that we kind of try to use our words sometimes because here's Jesus and he says it once, right? Be muzzled. And the demon not only is absolutely silenced immediately, but the, the demon is cast out of this man, setting him free. That, that's the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he's not suggesting or hoping this demon might come out. But with his word, he is making it happen. Jesus muzzles him. Now, if you think about it, this is a little odd that he does so. Because, you know, if this had been a test, right? This exam of, hey, can you identify who Jesus is correctly? The demons would have gotten an an absolute perfect grade, right? A plus. Well done. The Holy One of Israel nailed it. The Son of God, perfect. Nailed it. You see, they, they identify him perfect, and yet they, they, they recognize all these things, right? They recognize Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, which, which is far superior to what we saw the people in Nazareth do last week, right? Who, who only identify him, hey, isn't that Joseph's son? Right? They don't, they don't quite understand it. This title that, that they refer to him as, this is the t- same title that Peter is going to call Jesus in John 6, verse 68, after Jesus or asked the disciples, so are you going to leave me, right? Everyone's leaving because they're hearing some strange things out of my mouth. Are you going to leave too? And, and Peter says to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, we, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
So listen, it's easy for people today to function a lot like these demons. To have this fantastic theology, right? A plus. To to, to know the truth of God and, and yet to have... No love of Christ in their hearts. No affections for him. No no submission. No dependence upon the Lord Jesus. See, what we we know about God should should help us to have this deeper love for God. That's what the information, that's what the knowledge of Scripture and, 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 and theology is intended to do. So then, if the demon's information's right, do you ever kind of wonder... You're right. If it's theologically correct, why does Jesus correct them? What's the point in actually correcting them here? Because I used to think it was so people wouldn't know who Jesus is, as though he were trying to stay incognito and, oh, you know, these demons have figured out who I am. Let's shut them up. Cayete. And that can't be it because here Jesus is doing miracles, right? Here Jesus is telling them who he is. So the reason that Jesus silences these demons is is because he doesn't want the demons to be the ones telling people who he is. Think of it this way. Um, You you don't want Hitler or Stalin or Osama bin Laden on your resume as a character reference, do you? Right? You, You don't want that, right? You know, Hitler says that Derek's a pretty trustworthy guy. That's not the message you want on your resume. Uh, maybe think of it this way, something that we, we've kind of all seen living here in this part of Kansas. It's, it's not real helpful for us uh, in the Great Commission when Westboro Baptist comes to town and people begin to associate them with, with who Jesus is and who, what Christianity is. You, if you've seen them around town before, you, you, know, you know, if you had the authority of Jesus in that moment, you would absolutely muzzle them. Same way Jesus muzzles, muzzles these demons. And so all this then raises the question that we really have when it comes to demons. And do demons actually exist today? Do they exist? Are there invisible beings who hate God in the world with us today? The simple answer is yes, there, there is. Demons do exist. That, that doesn't mean that the, the people you know who are struggling with a particular sin or mental illness or physical illness, it doesn't mean that they are possessed by, the, by a demon. Uh, I, I've known people who want to blame absolutely everything on, on demons or the devil, right? The devil made me do it. Uh, it's just this, this phrase. This week, uh, Laura made some chocolate chip cookies for the, uh, the women's fellowship event over at the castings on Wednesday. And she left them out on the counter to cool and she was leaving the house. And before she leaves, because I'm always trying to, to eat healthier, she tells me, do not eat any of these. Okay. Bye. Um, well, I ate one. Probably within a minute of her leaving, I ate one. And then I, I ate another one. <laughs> and as much as I would like to be able to say, honey, the devil made me do it, I, I know it was my lack of self-control. I know it was my weakness that led me to eat those cookies. Right? That not the devil, not, not any demon. And, and listen to this. Listen, because the, the devil didn't make you look at pornography. The devil didn't make you cheat on an exam. It didn't make you angrily scream at your children in a way that you, you'd be embarrassed for anyone to know. It, you know. it didn't make you be a completely selfish spouse. It, it didn't make you hit your sister. It didn't make you hate your neighbor and say all kinds of nasty things about him. Your, your own heart is, is most likely the source of the sin that you commit. And, and, you know, but that doesn't mean that demon possession can't happen today. It absolutely can't happen. But, but it'd be far beyond what we understand. It's just basic temptation. Which, again, raises a new question for us. 
If demon possession can happen today, why, why don't you and I see it happening around us? Why, why are we not seeing it when we walk around the town, when we go into coffee shops and, you know, head to class or wherever it might be? Now, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this. You know, we're talking about authority. I'll, I'll give you an opinion on this, meaning this doesn't rise out of the text. It doesn't come with the authority of the text. Um, but let me, let me give you an opinion on that. And it's that this, that, that is that demon possession is done with a strategic purpose, meant to harm the work of God by harming the hearts of people. And since we are in a time and a culture where, where people simply don't believe in the supernatural at all, right? Overwhelmingly in our culture, you talk to people, they, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in demons. They believe in only what we can see. And since that's exactly what the devil would like people to believe, because really, if there is no spiritual reality, uh, if the world is purely physical, if everything is merely secular, then the dumbest thing the devil could do is to convince people that there is a supernatural that exists. Right? By having someone walk into your office tomorrow morning absolutely possessed by a demon. But in the first century Israel, in some countries around our, 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 the earth today even, so there are people, uh, people already believe in the supernatural. It's already a part of their life. And so there's no strategic advantage for demons to remain under the radar in those settings. But again, and I say this, I don't say that with authority. I say that as you, you look at the passage, you look at the situation, and it's just a simple theory for why we don't see demon possession as we interact with people in our city. Okay? So let's, let's move on here uh, and think about this next section, because Luke hasn't, uh, hasn't even told us who Simon Peter is yet, and here we have him telling us that Jesus is going into Simon Peter's house, right? Uh, to the rather Simon Peter's mother-in-law house, which most likely tells us that Peter was married, right? Um, and he grew up to a woman or a girl who grew up in uh, Capernaum, and, and now her mother is sick, and, and here Jesus is. She has this fever, only uh, Luke is a doctor, you remember, and so Luke gives us information that Mark doesn't mention at all. Uh, he actually says this phrase is, is a high fever, Right? He's using a more technical term, and, and his point as a doctor saying that is, he, here she is with this incredibly high fever, which is very likely to end, end fatally, right? Uh, particularly in this time period before aspirin and things of that nature. So we don't know who they are, but we are told that they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. Here's this physical manifestation, right, as they're there present, and it works the exact same way that prayer works for you and I. Right? They're asking God on the behalf of another to do something for them. So Jesus has the same power over sickness that he, that he had over demon, right? What kind of power? Unrestricted. Absolutely unrestricted power. And, I, and I'm not sure what rebuking a fever actually looks like. That's a weird concept, right? You, fever, be gone. I don't know what that looks like. But, um, but he does rebuke it, and the, and the fever immediately goes away. Now, typically, when someone recovers from a high fever, they are just laid out, exhausted, and weak from that point on. It's a long recovery. But, but here we see her immediately uh, wake up, right? Get up with energy and begin serving them. It tells us, you know, namely that this is a miracle that's happened. He didn't just happen to be there when, she ate, when her fever broke. It's a, it's a miracle that happens. I've always been intrigued and challenged by this event, though, right? Because here Jesus heals her, and she serves Jesus and others immediately. In a lot of ways, that's the picture of the Christian experience, right? At least what the Christian experience should be. She, she's not trying to pay Jesus back. But, but what a response, right? To, you know, has my response to, to God's spiritual healing, to, to, to sustained health, to the gospel? Is it, is it to serve the Lord and to serve others? Like this, like Peter's mother-in-law here? 
In other words, do we use our freedom in Christ to love God and to love our neighbors? In our passage, then the the day comes to an end, right? The sun's setting and, and suddenly these masses come out of nowhere to Jesus to be healed. The reason it happens like that is that the Jewish people were waiting until sunset so the Sabbath would be over because their understanding of the Sabbath would have forbid them to do so beforehand. Forbid the healing, forbid whatever effort it took to get to them. And Jesus then heals people, you know, maybe, maybe diseases like leprosy, maybe he's mending broken bones or removing, you know, uh, tumors or mental illnesses and, and he's casting out demons in some situations and, and all this healing, Right? But did you notice that Jesus, Jesus doesn't do some mass healing, right? It's not some, uh, everyone's healed at once. There's no omnibus option here. He, he gives each person personal attention and he cares for them, even though that is surely the least efficient thing he could have done in that moment. Yet here is, here is the Lord's personal care for these people. So Jesus still has healing power today. But he always, doesn't always do it in miraculous ways. More, more often, he answers our prayers for healing us and for healing our loved ones through ordinary means such as medicine and surgery, things of that nature. You ever, you ever take a pill for a headache and your headache does not go away? Right? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. That, that's because there's no guarantees in medicine. That's why we should always be asking God through prayer, prayer not just for miraculous healing, but, but for, for, for God to use medicine and surgery and treatments uh, to bring about healing. Let me also mention here that we should never, ever look at our health as this litmus test for whether God loves us, whether he truly loves us, right? Because God may choose not to heal you, and that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. There's a, a guy named Michael Wilcock. He, he imagines what Jesus might say to us when he chooses not to answer our prayers for healing. And he, he says this, Jesus, Jesus might say something like, I could, of course, give you immediate relief, but I would rather take the opportunity to do something far more reaching, which will be to your greater benefit in the long run. Got that quote from a commentary by Philip Ryken, and, and Ryken goes on to, to add this to it. He builds on it, and he says, often God uses the hurts of the body to bring healing to the soul, much the same way a doctor uses deadly chemotherapy to kill cancer. Well, we've got three verses left here. We're going to go ahead and read those. Um, you can listen if you've got your Bible open. Go ahead and follow along as I read, starting in verse 42. And remember, it's talking about Christ here. Uh, pronoun here. And when it was day, he departed and went, in, went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You get the picture, right? Jesus has been with people all day. He, he goes and he finds a place where he can be away from people, and then they come and find him. Mothers, that's your entire life, isn't it? Right? You go to a desolate place in the house for a personal moment of silence, peace, and children seek you out. Even the bathroom's not safe, right? 
So listen, we, we tend to think of Jesus. I want to make sure we understand that. Even as Christians, we get our, our, our views of Jesus messed up sometimes. We, we have this view sometimes as, as though it would be absolutely impossible for Jesus to sin. As if he, he were something like you know, stainless steel, which can't rust. It's just impossible. And, and we forget that in his humanity, he was capable of sinning. He didn't have this invincible shield around him, right? Uh, but, but, so he put great effort in, in, into this perfect obedience. He put great effort into seeking the, his, his father. And one of the things we see throughout the scriptures is that he does so with, with the ordinary means, right? The ordinary means of meditating on the scripture and, and seeking his father through prayer. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, which, which tells the exact same story that, that we're learning here today, uh, we're told that specifically that Jesus goes out the town so that he can pray to his father. That, that's what's going on here. See, if, if we too desire to, to grow in our relationship with God, to be sanctified in our lives, we, we need to, like Jesus, make a priority to get alone with God and, and actually be praying with God. Now, I, I'm not saying this in vocational sense, but ministry in every sense. And when we talk about ministry, we tend to think of it uh, as meeting with people or having Bible studies or mentoring or serving people. And, and all that really is ministry. But, but just as important as that, those aspects of ministry, so is taking a break from people and spending time alone with God in prayer. We are much more likely to ignore that today than we are the other aspects of ministry. You see, if, if Jesus Christ needed that in his life, uh, how much more do you and I need that in our life, need time alone with God? So I encourage you, implore you to, to take time this week to, to, just, to just, right, to go spend time with God in prayer. And I'll say ahead of time, you just, you just kind of have to know you're going to be bored a few minutes into this, right? That's not God's fault. That's where we are as, as people generally. You're just likely to find yourself bored, but don't quit when that happens. Pray, you know, write out your prayers if you prefer, but, but seek the Lord. Find some quiet space in your life, particularly in this busy season that you can just spend with the Lord. So let's have a, a quick look at one more phrase here in our passage. Uh, as people try to keep Jesus from leaving, he, he says to them, right, he gives this, this reason why, why, I can't, why I have to leave. He says, I, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Or he's going to go other places and preach this. This is the, the first of, of 32 references to this, the kingdom of God in Luke's gospel. And when you, when you, when you hear the word kingdom here, I, I want you to understand it not, a, not as a piece of land with borders, right, that are being guarded in that sense. But, but think of it in terms of, uh, of a, the reign of a king. The, the reign of God. It's, it's about Jesus bringing salvation to men and to women and to children who, who receive it by faith in Jesus and thus, and thus you're part of God's kingdom. This shows God's place of authority, right, over us. Or we are in his kingdom and he is the king. It also helps us to have God-centered goals in our lives. Right? We, we, we esteem ambition, but... In the kingdom of God, we should be esteeming holy ambition, which is different. So, so yes, we, we, we desire God's future, fully fulfilled kingdom when Jesus returns. We look forward to that. We're going to talk about that at the Lord's Supper, right? We, every time we read the, uh, the words of institution. But, but let's also desire and pray for Jesus to reign in our hearts. 
For, for us to understand that, that we are already in the kingdom of God right now if Jesus is our king. And I know that is a weird concept for us as 21st century Americans, right? Because we rebel against anything, any rule that's placed over as a, as a general way of functioning as a society. We are a submit-to-no-one culture. Not, not children to parents, not students to professors, not citizens to the law or law enforcement, not employees to bosses. Or bosses. We, we are a culture, like we are, as a culture, we are feral cats doing only what we want at any given moment. One of the foolishly esteemed phrases of our culture, I, I believe, is this, uh, do not let anyone tell you what to do. Right? It, it sounds glorious in certain settings. You probably don't hear it the same way today, but I, I Googled it on a Google image, and it was all these flowery, beautiful ways that this phrase is put up. Put up. Uh, I mean, but surely you see the irony in a statement, right? That, right? It, because it's somebody telling you what to do. Don't let anyone tell you what to do, except whoever wrote that. So if you're a, a Christian, then Jesus reigns over you. You're, you're a citizen of his kingdom. And so, so listen to what Jesus says. Seek what Jesus says. Seek first his kingdom, right? We, we desire that the Lord Jesus truly reign in our hearts, which, which means maybe this morning, maybe this day, maybe this week at some time, you need to sit down and speak with the Lord in prayer and, and just confess where in your life Jesus has not been reigning. Maybe you need to ask him to empower you to, to, to submit your life, to submit everything in your life to Jesus, right? To submit your future, to submit your, your health, your dreams, your broken dreams, your, your dating life, your vocational and, uh, vocation and career, your parenting, your marriage. To submit your secret sins to him, your, your finances, your, your whole life and purpose. So then the last thing that we see here is that Jesus stays the course with his calling. He says, I must preach the good news. Not, not I, I think I will, or I guess I will. I, I must preach the good news. Do, do, do you know your, your God-given calling as a child of God? Do you know it? The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a classic answer to that. It's derived from Scripture, and we read it as our affirmation of faith today. I hope you remember it still. Uh, you know, it answers that question, what's our, our chief ends, the way it, does, it says it. But what it means is, is, is our purpose. What's our, our purpose, our ultimate calling? And, and, and it says what? It says to glorify God, finish it. Enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And, and, and these scriptures then flesh out how we glorify God. They flesh out how we enjoy God. As wives and husbands, as children, employees, as Christians who, who live in a world that is absolutely soiled by sin, right? As we live in a world where we're surrounded by others who need Jesus just as much as we do. Brothers and sisters, let us submit ourselves to, the, to our King. To our King with the eternal kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let's pray. Lord God, you are magnificent. And you understand us because you, you chose to become like us, born in the flesh. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for setting us free from sin and drawing us to yourselves. Lord, we long for the day when, when, when we are fully glorified at your return, when we will no longer even be tempted to sin. But for the time being, Lord, it, it is a struggle for your people. And we ask that, that you would bring our hearts to under your submission as you reign gloriously, not just 
in the world, but in our lives and our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.